keep the church on track, it up as they go along. They'll take some of the things that God has said and they'll allude to them, but they love to infuse their own insights, their own thoughts, and they like to make God's Word something that supports a previously conceived notion rather than looking to what God has revealed and building truth on that. Now, as we look through the New Testament, so many of the letters that were written by Paul and Peter and James have to contend with those who came into the church and said, you know what God has said is good and it's interesting, but it doesn't go far enough. Let me add to what God has said. And as a result, disastrous things happen to the church. As the body of Christ, we have to be on guard against this. We have to keep the church on the right track, and we do that by aligning with God's Word. And that's what we want to see this morning as we look at Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Now, when we come to the 10th verse, we find Paul warned Titus And by extension, all of us, the damage that false teachers can inflict on the church. And he begins by talking about the way they deceive people into leaving the simplicity of the gospel. Look at the 10th verse. It says this, There are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Now, Paul is introducing a problem that was existing on the island of Crete. And that was this. There were teachers who had come in to the church and they were confusing people about what the gospel really stands for. The people that are mentioned here are the circumcision group. And unless we have a little bit of history in the Old Testament, we're not going to understand who they were. There were people who had come into the early church and insisted that many of the Jewish standards that had been a part of Judaism, and Judaism later was set aside by Christianity, or fulfilled, I should say, by Christianity, many of them wanted to hold on to the old doctrines, the old teachings of Judaism, and not the Judaism that God had revealed in the Word, but more a Judaism that they had hijacked and started to teach that it is by our actions and by our deeds that we have a relationship with God. So they were importing that into the church. And they were coming in and they were saying, unless you do these things, even though you have been justified by Jesus, you're not justified enough. Let's add these things to it. So this was a group that Paul had to contend with. And look at how he describes these false teachers. First of all, he describes them as rebellious. Now, what does it mean to be rebellious? The word literally means not receiving authority. And the idea is these people were coming in and they wanted to be an authority in and unto themselves. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ had commissioned the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, those leaders of the early church, to carry on the message of Jesus. They had been directly ordered by Jesus Christ to fulfill this role. 
But there were those who had come into the church and said, they're not good enough. They're not with us. They're not important enough. They don't speak well enough. They're not educated enough. And they started to erode people's confidence in the teaching of these apostles. And they rebelled against what these who had been commissioned by Jesus to teach God's truth, they began to erode people's confidence in them and their teaching. And so they rebelled. What Paul was warning Titus about and what he warns churches of all ages about is this. There are those who like to be an authority in and unto themselves. They don't recognize an authority greater than themselves. They have all the answers. They know better than anyone else. So they're going to make up the rules as they go along. They're rebellious. There's a second motive that Paul shares with us in this 10th verse. They are mere talkers. You ever met somebody that just loves the sound of their own voice? As soon as they start talking, they consider themselves immediately to be the smartest person in the room, and everybody picks up on it. Here's what we need to understand. Talk long enough, and eventually you're going to swerve into error. And that's what these people were. They were talkers. They loved to come in and set everybody straight. I know the Bible might say this, but this is what the Bible means. And they would lead people into error because of their love for their own voice. Really what Paul is saying in this text is they were full of hot air. They were mere talkers. They would ramble on and on and on about things, but no substance. Nothing that was really based in God's truth. You know, I'm afraid that there are trends within the church today where churches no longer examine the Word of God There are a lot of mere talkers out there who will come and share an exciting story. They'll talk about things that will get people really amped up, but at the end of it, when people walk away, they say, wow, I'm excited. I have no idea about what, but I'm excited. That's not what we need in the church. We need truth. And we need a truth that focuses on God's revelation. These mere talkers had come into the early church, and they had confused people. And then, perhaps the most frightening part is the third description we find in that 10th verse. They are deceivers. These were people who had come into the church, and they didn't share who they were or what their agenda was. They slipped in. And upon entering the church that had been planted by solid teaching, had been continuing by resting on the Word of God, they started to introduce other doctrines, and they started to slip it in to what had already been taught, and many people became confused. Now, this didn't just happen on the island of Crete. We have this that Paul said in the book of Galatians. He said, the matter arose because some false teachers had infiltrated our ranks, 
to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. You see, the evil one loves to confuse the simplicity of the gospel. And there are deceivers who will come in and present themselves to be one thing. In reality, they're another. So the church has to be careful. We have to compare what is said, not by personalities, not by likability, but by the Word of God. That has to be our standard. When we gravitate toward anything else, we're candidates for error. And that's what Paul is warning about here in this text. Paul goes on to talk about the destruction that these false teachers brought. The 11th verse says, They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach for the sake of dishonest gain. Now look at what they were doing. They were destroying households, teaching what they should not teach. The destruction that these false teachers were bringing in to the church at Crete was going to explode or implode the work of Christ in that area. Notice Paul begins by saying they must be silenced. Now the word silenced here is a strong word in the original language. It means to muzzle somebody, to make them stop talking. Listen, when somebody gets the gospel wrong, tolerance should go out the window. We should be careful with the truth of the gospel. There's not a place for us to live and let live when it comes to error about how a person comes into a relationship with God the Father. There's eternity at stake. So understand the importance of holding to the truth of God. Understand that this is not an area of compromise, and when somebody comes in introducing another gospel, they need to be stopped and told not to do that within the church. This is what God was calling for right here in this 11th verse. The damage that they were causing was profound. They were ruining entire households. The word translated ruined carries with it the idea of overturning or subverting. In other words, they were coming in and they were causing divisions within the family of God, but also within the households, the families that comprise the church. And that's what false teaching does. False teaching drives a wedge between the people of God. It causes division. It causes hurt. These people were going into homes, interacting with families. Some within the family would gravitate toward their teaching. Some would stand firm, and division was happening in the households, and it was happening within the church because of the confusion that they were sowing. What were they teaching? We don't know specifically. We have an idea. Again, they were called the circumcision group, so they were emphasizing Old Testament law. 
They were telling Christians that you can't be Christian unless you do these things, whatever their list of things were. And as a result, many of the Christians were buying in. So you had a church where some people were buying into the false teaching, others were standing firm against it, and as a result, a rift that took place in the church. And all of this because these false teachers were teaching things that they ought not to teach. But look carefully at that 11th verse. They must be silenced because they are ruining households by teaching things that they ought not to teach. And then we come to this, all for the sake of dishonest gain. The false teachers were depleting the church's resources and trust by being dishonest. Isn't it awful when we discover that somebody who has a prominent role in Christianity is found to be a scam artist, a con man, doing what he does for dishonest game. It's a blight to the church. It hurts us. It ruins our credibility in the world around us, and it harms confidence of those who are within the church as they look at leaders who gravitate toward dishonest game. Now here, Paul was probably talking about those who were advancing their own agendas financially. They were benefiting by bilking people out of their money. It's a terrible thing when shepherd leaders come in and fleece the flock, but that's what they were doing. Turn back a few pages to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Only a couple of pages back. And notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul addresses this same issue with Timothy. In the third verse, he's again talking about false teachers. And he says this, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. Now here is an insight into the heart of a false teacher. They're conceited, and they are unwilling to understand. But then it goes on and says, he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions. Wow, what a strong statement about how a false teacher operates. They love to cause trouble. Follow them, and you'll find broken relationships, division, strife, and people who are mistrustful of one another because that's their stock and trade. That's how they get people to engage in their plot to take over the work of the church. So that's the warning. If they're conceited, refusing to understand, they gravitate toward controversies and quarrels rather than trying to shut them down. They're a candidate for becoming a false teacher. Then look at verse 5. There is constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have robbed or been robbed of the truth and look at the last statement, who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. 
That's the common bond between these false teachers. Sometimes their gain that they're seeking is financial. But sometimes it's power. Sometimes it's prestige. Whatever gain they are looking to add to their lives, it's a gain that brings hurt and division to the church. And it's a gain that draws people away from the truth of God. So we need to beware. Then look at the 12th verse. Now, the 12th verse sounds a little bit nasty, doesn't it? It's kind of mean. It says this, Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. One of the prophets of the 6th century B.C., Epimenides, had uttered these words, And it was because of the reputation that the Isle of Crete had earned. This place was so notorious that when a person was a liar or a cheat, they would say that they were Cretanizing people. They made a verb out of the name of the island and said that they were liars and cheats. That's the reputation that they had. Now, those who had been redeemed no longer bought in to that system of thought. They had changed. But the false teachers were fulfilling the stereotype. And that's what Paul was warning about here in this text. I get the impression that Paul was probably rather upset with the false teachers because he saw what they were doing and he wasn't pulling any punches. But I also get the impression that this is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that's exactly what these people were doing and how they were behaving. And he was being real. And he was being honest. Sometimes in our culture, in an effort to be politically correct, we walk things back. But there's a place for us at times to call something what it is. And that's exactly what Paul was doing here. Under the direction of the Spirit of God. So how do we deal with these false teachers that are described in such detail in verses 10 through 12. As we come to verse 13, we find that the Word of God tells us that we cannot allow false teachers to go unimposed. We have to differentiate between sound teaching and man-made rules. Look at verse 13. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply. Now, Paul begins by telling Titus that his responsibility as the leader of the church was to rebuke them. He had the responsibility of going to them, and the words used are actually sharply rebuke them. Leaders, at times, have to look at the harm that a false teacher can do and take the risk of upsetting people by calling them out. That's what was done here. And that's what God calls other leaders to do as well. It's unsettling. It's difficult. You know what the hardest thing for a leader to do is know when it's time to approach somebody and sharply rebuke them. See, there's a part of us that wants to mend fences and heal and shepherd and care for people. That's where our heart is when we're servant leaders. 
there's also a time where a servant leader has to go to someone and say, brother or sister, you're heading off track and you're leading others with you and this has to stop. This is what Titus was called to do right here in this text. And so that's what Paul was saying must be done. Now, look at what we find also in this 13th verse. They're to be rebuked sharply. The goal is not only to preserve and protect the church, but it's also to try and get the false teachers themselves on track. Look at the goal of the 13th verse. So that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. Some of the people who were engaged in the teaching that the false teachers were promoting were deceived Christians. They were confused by the doctrine that they had been taught. They themselves had gotten off track. So some false teachers, you look at them and you say, look, you are a false teacher, you're not a believer, you have no place in our church family. There's another part of the group of false teachers that require care and prayer and that desire to lead them out of error back into the truth. And that was the goal that we find here that Paul was sharing with Titus. He wanted to see those who had been deceived and confused brought back to a place to where they engaged in promoting and teaching that which is sound in the faith. What was the danger? Look at the 14th verse. Again, another insight into what these false teachers were teaching. They were to be sound in the faith and pay no attention to Jewish myths. Now, what were the Jewish myths? Within Judaism itself, there were false teachers. And these false teachers had embraced some of the mythology of the area around them and had intertwined it with Jewish teaching. And then they took that and they tried to introduce it into the church as well. The application for us is this. Don't look at the society around you and try to make the scripture fit the society around you. There is that temptation. We aren't to take the teachings of other groups and try to go along to get along and redefine Christianity. A big issue within the church today, I just read an article in Christianity Today concerning this, is do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Hard to believe that that's even on the table. That shouldn't be on the table. Radically different views of who God is. But in an effort to try and reach others, they try to somehow soften the differences. We need to understand that there are profound differences between the God of the Bible and the God of other faiths. And we need to worship the God of the Bible without compromise, without softening the biblical view of who he is to make it fit a group that we might want to reach. 
The whole idea of reaching is bringing them to the place to where they know the one true God. And we do that by revealing who that God is. Many of those that Paul was mentioning here were those who were trying to reintroduce the rules of the law. And again, this is something that had to be dealt with, but that he had dealt with in other passages of scriptures and other letters. In the book of Colossians, it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. There has always been that tension that exists between truth and human tradition. But we should never allow human tradition to be a lens through which we view Scripture. It ought to be the other way around. We look at human tradition through the lens of Scripture and cast aside what doesn't match up. That's what the Word of God was calling Titus to do, and that's what the Word of God calls us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. We are not to pay attention to these commands if they stand in opposition to the truth, rejecting the truth of God. Another thing that we're to do in dealing with false teachers, we're to declare faith in God produces purity, not those with corrupt consciences and what they have to say. Look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who have corrupted or are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. Now here the Word of God is again showing us something very important for us to understand. The circumcision group that was mentioned in this text were coming into the church at Crete, and what they were doing was they were reintroducing many of the ideas of Judaism, and they were saying that, look, if Jesus has purified you, the way you become even purer is by doing this. And there's warning again in other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. In Colossians chapter 2, it says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Listen, when you are purified by Jesus Christ, you are as pure as you're going to get. There is no need for an addition. You don't have to add anything to what Jesus has done. These people were trying to say that you could become purer by your activity. Your actions of purity are the result of the purification that Christ has brought into your life. Not the cause of it, but the result of it. So to the pure, all things are pure. So what about the other people? What about the ones who were saying, look, I can add to the purity of Christ by doing these things as purification? There was confusion. You see, as they were trying to add to what Christ had done, in reality, they were diminishing what Christ had done. You cannot add to perfection. The moment you try to add to perfection, you mess things up. If you ever built something and you get it and you look at it and you say, wow, that's just great. It's fit together, just perfect. This is what I was going for, but I think I can make it better. 
So then you take it and you redo it just a little bit more, and it's off. That's what people were doing with the truth of God here. They're adding to it. I can fix this. I can make it just a little bit better. In reality, they were making it worse. Why? Because it's not what we do that causes purity. It's what we've experienced through Jesus. We are pure through him. But when I try to achieve a purity of my own, I mess it up. I can't help but do so. Why? Because look at what that 15th verse says. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. The problem isn't the external trying to make the internal pure. That that doesn't work. It, It can't accomplish anything. Purity comes from within and is shown outwardly. Not outwardly transforming and making us pure inwardly. And this is a point that Jesus brought out with clarity in the Gospels. To the Pharisees who attempted to lead pure lives so that they could be spiritually cleansed, Jesus said to this, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are dead, full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Wow. You know, as human beings, we would look probably at these false teachers and we would say, wow, there is a really righteous person. Look at how good they live. But what God sees is detestable. What God sees is someone who is seeking self-glory, seeking personal gain, and God finds them offensive in every way. And that brings us to the 16th verse. Denial of God in action speaks louder than claims to know him. Look at verse 16. They, referring to the false teachers, claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, these are some strong words that Paul uses. First of all, he makes an important point for us to understand. Anybody can claim to be a follower of Christ. Anybody. While we are not to necessarily go around and discern and determine who are really believers or who are not, we can't see into their heart. We can see actions that can cause us to wonder. And that's what Paul is talking about here. These were people claiming to know God, but their teaching showed something else. When somebody claims, I know God, and then demonstrate patently false teaching you are very safe in looking at that person and saying they don't really know God. And we're responsible to do so. Now, some Christian liberty issues and other things like that is a question of maturity at times when we look at people and we say they're not behaving much like a Christian. And frankly, I can find points in my life where I'm not behaving much like a Christian. 
when I do a project and something doesn't come together right, I don't behave like a Christian. (laughs) Paula wanted me to hang a a picture. That almost caused me to lose my sanctification. (laughs) It had two hangers on it. I said, don't buy pictures that have two hangers. They never get straight. I went into a tirade about this picture and the system that they used to hang it. And of course, there's Swiss cheese on my wall where I tried to get the nail right. And with each failure, I became angrier at the picture. (laughs) I shouldn't have said that in front of the trustees, should I? But at any rate, we need to understand that all of us can have those lapses, those failures that characterize it. But when a person is off base biblically about the gospel and about the truth of how Jesus cleanses us, there's an issue. Look at how they're described in this text. They, by their actions, deny Christ, causing division causing all of the problems that have been mentioned in this text so far, how does God view them? The last sentence of the 16th verse, sobering, says, first of all, they are detestable. Now, we look at that word and we think, oh, that's pretty strong. But in the original language, the idea means disgusting, a complete abomination, abomination to God. Wow, you know, strong word here. How does God view them? They disgust him. God finds them completely offensive. And if we are seeking to be like God, we should find that teaching offensive as well. Next, they are disobedient. The word in the original language means unable to be persuaded. In other words, there is a willful, stubborn resistance to authority. When they look into Scripture, they don't care. The Bible may say that, but I don't care. This is what I think, and it has authority over what Scripture says. We have to be careful of them. And then finally, they are unfit for doing anything good. Now here's the interesting part of this verse, unfit for doing anything good. When we look on the outside, we would disagree with that. We would look at what false teachers do and we say, wow, they do a lot of good things for people. They bring them meals. They donate clothing. They're very kind to people when they want to and when it suits their purpose. So that false teacher must be all right. But understand this. Our good works, if that is what we hope to achieve acceptance by God with, are described in Scripture as filthy rags. They are defiled by the sin that is in our lives. But they are also defiled because to the impure, all things are impure. 
We can't change ourselves again from the outside in. There must be a transformation that God makes from the inside out. The false teachers didn't get that. And even the good things that they did were defiled because of terrible motives. I could do something wonderful, but if I am doing it so that everybody looks at me and says, I'm wonderful, that good thing has suddenly become terrible because it's all about me and not about God. God sees to the heart. He doesn't just look at the outward motivation. He looks at the inward person and he says, why did you do this? A believer will do it for the glory of God. A false teacher will do it so that everybody will look at him and gain confidence in what they're doing. As a pastor, I so appreciate the people in the church body who serve behind the scenes and do tremendous things. And I have the privilege of knowing about it, not because they've come and told me, but because I've witnessed it. And they tell us, just keep it quiet. I'm with this anonymous. That's what God would have us do. But for the false teacher, they have to announce it. All about them, not about God. This morning, we have seen that it is very easy for the church to get off track. And let me say this. Any church that is serving God, teaching His truth, teaching His Word, will have attacks by those who would seek to derail the church. What we have the responsibility of doing is making sure that, number one, we know the Word of God. We cannot refute what we do not know. So we have to know the Scripture. But then secondly, our responsibility is to take a stand for the truth. Now, I'm not talking about battling people and getting into fights and being nasty and mean and looking down our noses at other people for not being as spiritual as us. That, that gets into the realm of the behavior of false teachers. But what I am talking about is taking a stand for God's truth, being unwilling to compromise, not looking at things that we can throw aside to get along with other people, but looking first at what the Scripture says and building our lives on God's truth. That's my prayer for Oakland Bible Church. Our value as a church is a consistent approach to teaching the Word of God and believing the truth of what God's Word says. We value that. Let's pray as a church body that we stay true to that. Any church is a candidate for getting off track. It happens to the best of them. But as followers of Jesus Christ... We need to stay on track, consistent with God's teaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text.